1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine, with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing Europe's escalating migrant crisis, learning about Australia's controversial voice referendum, and asking why some churches rise and others fall. First up, Christopher Caldwell writes in the cover story this week about Italy's new wave of migrants, which he says will upend European politics. He joins me now, along with Amy Kasmin, Rome correspondent for the Financial Times. Chris, I I want to get onto the ways in which you say the enormity of this migrant crisis will upend European politics. But first, could you get our listeners up to speed with the situation in Lampedusa?
2: Well, I can tell you how it stood yesterday or a, or a couple of days ago, which is that Lampedusa is very far south in Italy. There are parts of you know there are some places in Africa from which migrants travel southeast to get to Lampedusa. so it's it's tucked down into that bay uh, you know between uh, Tunisia and, and 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 Libya. So it's always under a lot of pressure but, Italy has got a lot of migrants this year. It's got about 130,000 migrants this year. And last week, in the course of about five days, you had 11,000 landings in in Lampedusa, which um, which alarmed a lot of people and brought Georgia Maloney, the, the the premier there, along with Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission. And so so it's turned into a kind of a crisis. And there's um. There's a lot of attention, not just in Italy but elsewhere in Europe. Hmm.
1: And uh, at the moment, what what is Maloney and uh, and Ursula von der Leyen? who also, of course, visited Lampedusa. Uh, what is their reaction to the crisis? What do they say they're going to do uh, about it?
2: Well, it, you know, it Maloney has responded in a pretty mainstream European way, which is an, an interesting thing in itself. Uh, you know, you remember when when Maloney came to power a year ago, she was thought of as um, you know sort of the 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 most right wing person ever to have who have occupied her position in Italy that was a little bit exaggerated even at the time because she'd had very good relations with the government of Mario Draghi even though she was the only the only party in opposition but in the past year she's run she's run Italy in in, in a rather centrist way and in, in a way that a lot of people who are not on the Italian right actually find quite tolerable. And so her line on this migration crisis has continued to be Europeanist. She wants to work with um, uh, von der Leyen. The, the, The mood music was all about how this is not the frontier just of Italy, but of Europe. And it was a kind of a contrast, actually, even with the last government, which was much more nationalistic, I would say, in its migration policy.
1: Amy, were you surprised at all by Maloney's uh, Europeanist reaction, as as uh, Chris describes it?
3: Well, I think we have to really look at the way that this, this has evolved since Maloney um, came to power. And, of course, like many fiery leaders in opposition, you know, who say they're going to do extreme or dramatic things, it often proves harder to do those things once you're in power. In opposition, it's easy to kind of really declare dramatic things like we're going to have a naval blockade. But when you actually get down to the nuts and bolts of trying to implement some of these policies, you realize the complexities. And I think that there's no more you know, complex issue than the issue of how to stop human migration or control it. And it's, it's an issue not just in Italy, but I mean, in the United States. I mean, these are clearly incredibly complicated problems. Maloney, when she first came to power, did start off doing some very hardline things that did differentiate her from, you know, say, the Draghi government. There was a kind of a war on NGO rescue boats that were trying to help people in danger of drowning in the Mediterranean. There are a number of humanitarian organizations that actually have boats out there in the Mediterranean Um, when boats, overloaded boats, fragile boats are in distress and look like they... Could you know be in danger of tipping over or sinking and drowning lots of people? There are actually boats that go in and, and pick people up and then bring them into Italy. And the government started off with some very tough policies towards these boats. Initially, they tried not to let them land, and and it ended up in a diplomatic row with France because there is some international law that says. You know, boats that are on the sea and run into boats in distress have some kind of international obligation. And Italy is a signatory to this international law. So the idea that somehow it's completely centrist and European, I think she has tried to be tough on these NGO boats, who she and her government believe are pull factors, encouraging migrants to undertake the dangerous journey. I think it's important to remember that earlier this year there was a terrible shipwreck of a boat of migrants, a boatload of migrants that actually not come from Tunisia, which is where the huge inflow came now, but it had crossed all the way from Turkey. And in an absolutely, you know, ghastly tragedy, this boat filled with people fleeing terrible conditions in Afghanistan, especially on Pakistan. Italian government was aware that this heavily loaded boat was heading its way and it had received a message and a warning. They did not send out a rescue boat to assist this boat. And in the end, it got like 100 meters from the shore broke apart on terrible rocks, and like a hundred people, including women, children, and babies, drowned. And it turns out that the Italian public, maybe they don't like migrants, but they also don't really like people drowning on their shores. And there was a really kind of visceral reaction that this was an awful thing that happened and you know Meloni and her had to go down there President Sergio Mattarella had to go down there um went down there to pay respects and the local people marched a cross was made out of um of the wooden boat that had broken apart and that cross found its way to the pope so it's also important to remember that like the pope who uh, has a tremendous amount of moral authority and is really quite a political actor in Italy in ways that, you know, maybe people living outside the country don't appreciate. You know, he is always emphasizing the humanitarian aspect of this. So I think there have been these various things. But also it's very important to remember that Italy is incredibly dependent right now on Brussels. It is receiving 200 billion euros from a post-COVID recovery plan. And if they go too far out and really alienate Brussels, there is this money at stake. So I think that's all kind of, that's all in the mix.
1: Moving on, uh, Chris, from Italy into the rest of Europe, I wonder if you could explain for our listeners why you write that the enormity of the crisis is about to shake European politics to its core.
2: Yeah. Not every European country is, is quite as close to these African sea routes as as Italy, they are all desirable countries for large numbers of um, migrants to go to. And Amy just mentioned um, a boat that 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 was diverted from Italy and wound up landing in Toulon. It had only we can say only about two hundred and eighty people on it. But when those people disembarked and disappeared into into France, it was a it was a major national outrage. It really had quite an effect on public opinion. I think that's happening. It's happening everywhere, and you have—I mentioned in this article that you know over the weekend there was a big, a huge street battle between two groups of um, Eritrean exiles in Stuttgart, which is now the big news in, in Germany. So, I mean, as you know, in, in 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 England too, these things are very, very volatile subjects, and even in countries that seem a little bit distant from the the, the, the migratory front lines. You know, you have there are six countries in Europe that let's say the European Union had a, a a migrant pact over the in June that 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 includes a number of different measures like like cooperating with Tunisia and and a fairer distribution of migrants from these frontline countries. There are six countries that say they don't want to take any migrants at all, and this is a big issue in those countries too. So. I guess the key thing is that a lot of this pressure is simply demographic. Okay, Europe is aging, and, and and the native population is shrinking. The median age in Germany and in Italy and in Austria is getting close to fifty. You know, the median age in say Niger is about fifteen. Okay, so you, you just have a lot of pressure. You have like like a lot of population pressure now, and it's bound to get bigger in every European country.
1: And so, uh, Chris, are Europe's leaders panicking about this? Are they worried about a sort of backlash of right-wing populism, perhaps as we saw after 2015 with the last very large influx of migrants into Europe?
2: Yeah, I think there's every reason to be. I, um, You know, if you look at what's happening in in Italy, you know, I, I would say right now Maloney is quite secure in in, in in her government. But the but the notes of unrest that are coming from the public are coming actually more from the right than from the left. I mean, there's a book by a by an Italian general called in Italian "The World Turned Upside Down." It was just it's kind of a self published book that's got a lot of um, well it's got a lot of grumbling in it about um about gay rights and migration and, and, and other progressive causes. And it's been, it's just this self-published, like mimeographed book that came out in early August. And it's been the number one best-selling book in the country for like six or seven weeks, okay? So Melody's under a lot of pressure from the right in her country. In Germany, too, you see, if you look at the Bavarian state elections, they're very, the CSU, which is, has, traditionally been the most which is the Bavarian part of the, you know, of the of the Christian Democrats. It's traditionally been the most conservative force in the country. And yet they too are being challenged from the right in the in the upcoming state elections. So yeah, we actually are in in something similar to 2015 or or 2016.
1: Hmm. Amy, have you noticed from where you are in Rome that Maloney is getting, as Chris puts it, attacked more from the right then she is from the left? And do you sense there is this growing, perhaps right-wing populist backlash in Italian politics because of the migrant crisis?
3: Well, look, I think, you know, Georgia Maloney is actually an incredibly savvy and accomplished politician. I think her political skills are really quite impressive. But it's true that she is under pressure on the right. Of course, the left is, you know, criticizing often, and but I don't think anyone is paying that, I mean, I'm not sure that there's that much attention being paid to them at the moment, but the person that she does really have to watch out for is her political frenemy, Matteo Salvini, who is, a stent- who is her coalition ally and partner. He's the leader of the league and he is the deputy prime minister. But there's no doubt that at this point he is trying to Outflank her on the right. If you look back a few years ago, their change in fortunes between these two politicians is extraordinary. Four years ago, Salvini was, you know, riding high and looked like he was posed to lead the league as a future prime minister, like, lead the league to be the dominant party in a a right-wing coalition. He had around 30, maybe more than 30. I don't remember the precise number, percentage of the vote. She had 3%. And their positions have completely reversed over the last couple of years. She now has like 30% of the vote supporting her and her Brothers of Italy party. His support has fallen to like 10%. So He is absolutely playing a game where, you know, he says all the time we're all on the same page, we're all on the same page, but at the same time, he is very much trying to position himself as like the true right, where she is trying to slightly recenter herself at the center right. And, you know, so it is about which of them, I mean, they're basically playing for the same right-wing votes and... And who's going to get them? And, you know, who's going to get more of them, him or her? Right now, she remains incredibly dominant. But he is definitely, like, hoping to kind of stoke up those who are dissatisfied with her and, you know, to make them say, oh, she can't really deliver. Let's go back to him. I mean, he was quite discredited a few years ago. There was a feeling that he wasn't very serious. She, I think, presented herself as, like, the serious person who was really ready for government, whereas I think his he has had a reputation as more of a loose cannon. I actually think that, you know, the fact that von der Leyen went to Lampedusa, sat shoulder to shoulder, she is saying, like, look... I am doing the best I can with a very difficult problem. We do have Europe on our side. Ursula von der Leyen herself she made a point of saying she'd like interrupted her trip or like delayed her trip to the UN General Assembly to come and see the situation in Lampedusa for herself. We do have allies in Brussels, and we are trying to work together. We need everyone to work together to solve this problem, which is, in fact, probably a much more mature and realistic position than to just think that, you know, Italy can sort of do what it wants and and solve, like, obviously a very, very complicated problem.
1: Thank you, Chris and Amy. Next, Matthew Paris writes in his column this week about Australia's voice referendum, a yes-no vote being held on whether to establish a new body which will advise Parliament on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The vote is a source of real controversy and division in the country, and here to discuss it with Matthew is Alexander Downer, former Australian Minister for Foreign Affairs and leader of the Liberal Party between 1994 and 1995. Alexander, could you start by explaining what the upcoming referendum in Australia is all about? Well, in Australia, to
4: change the written constitution, you have to have a referendum, not only an act of parliament to change the written constitution, but then put that to a referendum, which has to be carried by a majority of voters, also by a majority of voters in a majority of the six states as well. So in four of the six states. Um, the proposal of the labor government is to have a change to the con- make a change to the constitution which would not only recognize in the constitution indigenous australians aboriginal and torres-, torres strait islander australians but also would establish a new institution which would then advise the government as well as the parliament on issues that related to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs. That is basically the proposition.
1: And in terms of the reason the referendum's come about in the first place, just going back a bit, and the reason this body is being suggested, it's related to um, document advising about the voice, isn't it? And I wonder if you could explain the context for our listeners about the plight of the Aboriginal Australians and, and how how all this has led to this point when it comes to calling for the referendum? Well, the referendum comes out of a commitment by the Labour Party at the last
4: election that they'd changed the constitution and their idea to change the constitution came from a statement made by some Aboriginal leaders a few years ago at Uluru, AS Rock. And um, it's, uh, the statement is called the Uluru Statement from the Heart and it asks that Australians will change the constitution and establish this consultative body within the constitution so why is this happening this is happening because some um, some of the aboriginal leadership of course you know whatever people's race you'll find divisions of opinion amongst them but some of the aboriginal leadership particularly the more radical um left wing components of it believe that all Indigenous people in Australia or all people who have an Indigenous heritage of one kind or another are disadvantaged and discriminated against and therefore they need um, a sort of collective voice. This is, uh, of course, contested by people that's much debated who say, well, not all Indigenous people, well, not all people with an Indigenous heritage in Australia are the same. Some of them are successful doctors and lawyers and have been ambassadors and successful business people and the like, whereas others live in remote communities. So 15% of the Indigenous Australian live in remote communities. And I mean, there may be money available. But the living conditions in those very remote communities, which are often hundreds of kilometres from the next community, with very little in the way of employment opportunities, education opportunities, social opportunities, the living conditions are fairly dire. And it it's really that 15% of the Indigenous population that has been very much a focus of public debate in Australia, what to do about those people living in remote communities and their third world living standards. So this has sort of emerged from that debate. It would take um, weeks to go through the various policy iterations there have been over the last few decades, but there has been a huge effort made by Australian governments state and federal governments to try to improve the living standards of people in those remote communities. But I think my take on it is that people who live in really remote communities without any significant economic base are going to be substantially disadvantaged compared to people who live in in towns or cities um, which have an economic base. So a lot of the problem isn't to do with their... Their race or their their heritage, but to do with the circumstances in which they live. In any case, there is a huge debate in Australia over this, and it has proved to be very divisive. Both sides calling each other racists, descending into abusive uh, public meetings. The two sides now won't debate together with each other because the known as the Yes campaign, the pro referendum body thinks it will lose boats if it and sits down with the no people and has a debate with them. So the whole thing has descended into acrimony, might be the simplest way of putting it.
1: Yes, yeah, so Matthew, you you write uh, in your column this week about your, your recent trip to Australia where you witnessed this debate. I, and I wonder um, if you could tell our listeners about this division that uh, you write about in your piece and what you witnessed uh, when you were there.
5: Well, I, I should first say, that I, I only had a, a snapshot. I was only for a little less than a month in Australia. Alexander knows all about this and everything that he is saying uh, rings true with with what I saw. And we were all uh, sit, sitting round actually in a kind of bush supper outdoors and there were some young people working, I think, in the voluntary sector there and, and there were some more elderly people and a lady from Melbourne and... Uh, Someone was unwise enough to to mention the word the voice, and I I quickly realised that there it, there's a bit of a taboo, even about mentioning it unless unless everybody round the table thinks they're going to agree, and the lady from Melbourne kind of weighed in. Oh, Aboriginal people! You know they won't help themselves. They just sit around drinking beer. They make a huge mess and they never, never clear it up. And you know what can you, what can you do about it? And in town centres, when there's a whole lot of them together, I feel afraid that that there's something intimidating about them. And the young woman who was rather brave in that company, I, I think, uh, started saying, "Well, that that's that's not right. It's not true." of all it's not true of most uh, how many aboriginal Aborig- people do you actually know and work with you know they're great people uh, they have a, a a wonderful cooperative spirit and so on and the argument raged uh, people remained polite but one just got a, a sense of the tension in the group that we were even discussing these things it was as though Banquo's ghost had uh, somehow appeared at the table.
1: Yes well I mean lots of people in the UK media keep comparing this referendum to the Brexit referendum but I suppose one could argue that that this is perhaps even more of a divisive and contentious issue because it is a referendum that is explicitly o- on a question of uh, racial division and, and racial lines.
5: I, I just can't see why Anthony Albanese even, uh, even decided to, to have a referendum in the first place. Actually, the previous uh, liberal coalition had mooted the idea, but had never taken it any further. And for some reason, he decided to take it further. I would have thought anyone would, could told him how this would go. All over Australia, people are worrying, I think, about it. I saw just one or two yes Posters in people's windows I never saw a single no poster anywhere And you know I actually find that slightly ominous I feel that the no people They're not going to put posters up They're just going to go out and vote no
4: Well Matt has said it all I think um, it's proved to be as you would expect any And having a referendum on Brexit is, Is one thing on whether you should be a member Of the European community or not That's a mechanical thing And has some philosophical background to it as well on race, having a referendum on race, I would just de- describe that as an incredibly unwise thing to do. And to generalize about people's race, to say all Aboriginal people will be represented by this body. Well, even Aboriginal people who are millionaires, even the, you know, ambassadors who are Indigenous. Um, sports stars who earn millions of dollars a year, they will be represented as well by this body. This is just race politics. Um, Imported, by the way, from North America as part of their much-beloved critical race theory, which, I mean, I think is one of the most divisive things of our era. And dividing people up on the basis of race is, for me, a shocking thing to do. I used to campaign against apartheid in South Africa when I was a student. And now seeing all of this race politics re-enter a very tolerant, very egalitarian and rather liberal country like Australia, it's just incredibly sad to see. But as Matt says, people don't necessarily want to talk about it because they're frightened that if they talk about it over lunch or dinner, they will fall out with each other. I went to a dinner party in South Australia quite recently. And just towards the end of the dinner, the host foolishly said, Well, by the way, what do you all think about the voice? And you know, two hours later, people were still shouting at each other. So um you can have a referendum on Brexit, but never have a referendum on race. That was that's the moral of modern Australia. But my guess is that when the referendum comes on October the 14th, it won't just lose, it will lose easily. Hmm.
1: And if Australia is, as you say, a very liberally, liberally tolerant country, is the reason for voting no, is it because Australians want to do right by Aboriginal uh, Australians, but they don't believe this is the right way of doing it? Is that is that why you think uh, no is gaining momentum?
4: Yes, I've got, I mean, there's no argument in Australia about... Um, wanting to help those Aboriginal people who need help. But I mean, that is true of non-Aboriginal people, of Asian people or Caucasian people who need help. There is a view in Australia that people who are disadvantaged um, should be helped by society in one way or another, particularly by governments, but not exclusively by governments. But I think Australians have really recoiled from this idea of establishing a race-based institution. So Australia would have built into its constitution forever, by the way, forever, uh, built into its written constitution, an institution which uh, most Australians would be ineligible to participate in. On the basis of their race, that would be that would be something like ninety seven percent of Australians would be disqualified from participating in this institution. I think in the end, people think that's that's not right. No, not in an egalitarian society.
5: We're talking as though there is, on the one hand, white Australia, on the other hand, Indigenous people. Uh, but that Australia now has a very large um, non-white immigrant. Or originally immigrant population, people from uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand. All all those places are they part of this conversation? What do they think about the the Aboriginal
4: issue? So they think um, what other Australians think. (laughs) They they don't uh, break up on racial lines when they come to address this issue. I mean, they all to put this into some perspective. About eighteen percent of the Australian population is of Asian heritage and then there are people of Middle Eastern heritage and African heritage and so on. So although Australia is still predominantly a white country and those white people largely have their heritage in the British Isles including Ireland, it is a multicultural country and it prides itself on that and it prides itself on embracing people of all races and all cultures that is part of the national ethos or as they like to say nowadays national zeitgeist so i would have imagined non-caucasian people would think about this issue exactly what caucasian people think i don't think there would be a breakup on those grounds at all
1: and just finally uh, alexander do you get a sense that the Labour government regrets calling this referendum, or are they uh, proudly sticking to their guns for it, at least for now? And if they don't regret it yet, do you think they may well regret it on October 15th?
4: I'm not sure, sure that regret is the right word. I think they're proud of the fact that they've called the referendum and they believe it's the right thing to do. So they obviously can read the polls as well as I can, and that Many of them are politicians, so they're meeting the public the whole time. And it's this silence of the Australian public uh, when you're a government. The silence of the public is a very, very bad sign. Yes, yes, yes. Because <laughs> people are polite, but um, they won't go up to you and say, you're a bloody idiot, you shouldn't ha- be having this referendum and I'm voting no. But they're just silent about it, which means they are going to vote no and uh I so I think they will they will probably do what the left normally do when they lose votes. they will say it's not fair and it's somebody else's fault, and the conservatives are bastards and there will be there'll be quite a lot i mean whichever way it goes, this is going to end in tears there will be a lot of acrimony that will come out of it, and it will be a lasting sore. Whatever happens, whichever way the boat goes, and as I've said, I'm almost certain it will go no, but whichever way it
1: goes, it's
4: going to leave Australia scarred and bruised.
1: Thank you, Matthew and Alexander. And finally, in the magazine this week, Dan Hitchens writes a tale of two churches. He compares the fastest growing and fastest shrinking churches in the country. He joins me now with Reverend Marcus Walker, rector of the Priory Church of St. Bartholomew the Great in London. Dan, could you start by talking our listeners through what lessons you learnt about the state of Christian faith in the country from visiting these two churches?
5: Yeah,
6: it's only a small sample, going to two churches. But it was fascinating seeing Elam Pentecostal, which is the fastest growing denomination, and then the following week going to uh, the United Reformed Church, which has the fastest rate of decline. At Elian Pentecostal, there was a kind of raucous energy, I have to say. It felt a bit like a, a family reunion. Everyone knew when to join in, You know, raucous laughter, in-jokes, almost something anarchic about it. And at the same time, a very strong sense of identity. This is what we believe. This is who we are this is how we're going to tell the world about Jesus. I mean, they're very intentional about evangelising. And actually, it seems that the sociological research does suggest that churches with a strong sense of identity who also uh, really know what they believe often have quite strict doctrinally conservative beliefs are in modern Britain growing. And the United Reformed Church does take a different kind of approach. It's explicitly, if you look on its website, it says we embrace a wide range of opinions. We don't have a strong sense of hierarchy or authority in terms of what we believe. And they certainly take a much gentler approach, I think. The sermon I heard, which was actually from the moderator of the United Reformed Church, was in part about how one should avoid using pronouns, if possible, if that's what you want to do for God, don't say he or she or it or they, which again shows a certain distance from Christian tradition, and perhaps again a a slightly fuzzier identity. So I think perhaps if you ask them, you know, what do you believe, you might hear quite similar answers, but there were different atmospheres at those churches. And I think that reflects uh, the fact we have an extraordinary diversity of forms of Christianity in this country, and also a great diversity under the surface in terms of who is succeeding, converting new Christians and growing and who is experiencing decline. Hmm.
1: Well, Marcus, I wonder what you make of Dan's piece and uh, his diagnosis, perhaps for some of the issues that are, that are causing churches to decline. Um, I wondered if you could give, give us your, your take on it and whether you think there are lessons to be, to be learned from the churches that are growing very fast and the ones that, that are declining very fast as a, as a model of what not to do.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's a very interesting piece. As Dan says, there's always a danger when looking at two churches and extrapolating from from the particular to the general. but you know the, the, the broader underlying statistics which led him to these two churches are the, the most interesting thing. I mean, there's always a danger of talk of sort of reading too much into very new churches growing very fast, because a small amount of growth is an astronomical percentage of increase. But, so all of that sort of caveated, but it is interesting to see which churches, not just in the UK, but across the Western world, are growing, which churches are shrinking, why they're shrinking, what their sort of links are to their own past and to the broader Christian tradition and to the broader culture. I think all of that's very, very interesting. And I think Dan's pulled out a couple of very interesting threads. The first question I'd ask is, is it worth getting up in the morning, getting out of bed, wrestling with children to drag them to church in order to go to church? I think the late Queen had a line that was, do you feel better after a service? And I get the feeling that actually, you know, you feel that it's worth going to the the the, the, the L.M. Pentecostal church. I think, you know, from what you've just described, Anne, from your article, you know, it's not my style, I would not probably enjoy going, but for those who are there, there's something worth getting up and going there, and indeed for their salvation there's something worth getting up and going there, and that this has a real consequence to their lives, and a real consequence to their lives, not just now, but for eternity. The trouble of going to a church where you're having a discussion about pronouns and you're slightly being told off for worshipping the way that you probably always worshipped. And there's a, you know, the sermon that you've described sounds very inverted, looking inwards, you know, discussing what we say about God and should we and shouldn't we and all the rest. You do wonder whether you feel at the end of that, yes, I'm really glad I've got up gone to church today and I really feel that this is going to make a difference to my life now and I really feel this is going to make a difference to my life in eternity. That I think is probably the core of of what's going on and that's why in your piece you sort of talk talk about how you've got sort of highly liturgical orthodox, you've got very non-liturgical Pentecostals, you've got you know what's the thread that runs through that? In the Church of England you've got you know the two big growing congregations are cathedrals and the Holy Trinity Brompton, actually, both places where you really feel uplifted after a service. You know, you actually feel that you're engaging with something meaty and serious after a service. Like, I think that that can be across traditions. You know, cathedrals are famously quite liberal, Holy Trinity Brompton's famously not, well, except in liturgy. So, you know, they'd that, 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 be my reflections. Sorry if they're slightly haphazardly framed.
1: Dan I also wondered. well Marcus spoke just now about the diversity in the forms of Christianity that we get in this country. I wonder if you could give us your thoughts a little bit on what you touched on at the end of your piece which is uh, could big churches you know um, such as Catholicism or the Church of England I wonder how if they can learn lessons what lessons they can learn from the smaller churches in terms of allowing diverse Pieces inside the larger church. I um, mean, you give the you give quite a few um, examples at the end of at the end of your piece, uh, and I wonder what um, whether we're going to see more of that in the future.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the piece is sort of written against an assumption that because Christianity is in numerical decline overall, which of course it is in the UK, that therefore there's just a few bewildered holdouts still going to church and some people doing it out of habit. And that, uh, you know, as Richard Dawkins puts it, Christianity is in its death throes. But actually, you know, when you look below the surface, you see some forms of Christianity are declining fast. Some are extraordinarily vibrant. And a lot of those are kind of smaller, more recent churches. But there's also parts of the older churches which have, you know, branches across the land, as Father Marcus says, there's bits of the Church of England which are growing fast. In There are areas where Christianity is growing. I mean, in, in London over the last 40 years, church attendance has risen. So there are certainly lessons internally as well for, say, Church of England and Catholic Church. One thing which I, I speak to a sociologist called Stephen Bullivant about, one approach is in a way to imitate the smaller churches who are very good at saying, here's a town where there's a big demand for what we do, where people really want charismatic worship. So we're going to put a big charismatic church here. You know, here's a town with a big immigrant population, you know, who will respond to what we do and so on. And the equivalent of that within the Catholic Church, which is the area I know best, is to look at, say, liturgical traditionalists and say, give them a parish. So you don't just have 10 traditionalists in one parish and 10 in another and 10 in another, but you have one place where they have what they really want. And often those places start to grow and draw in other people. Or the Syro-Malabar rite, um, largely Indian origin Catholics who've seen enormous growth. And they have, in fact, their own kind of diocese under their own bishop, which is a, a really thriving part of the church. So I think that's um, that's one lesson, is look to your strengths and make a virtue of the kind of diversity and fragmentation within your own um, larger church community, even if you are you know, in in the
0: millions. May I come in on that? Because actually this is something the Church of England has really tried to do, and in fact has put a vast sum of money into trying to do exactly this broadly they call it uh, the mixed ecology and they created in about 2016 a fund called the strategic development fund and spent 176 million pounds essentially trying to create new churches and new communities in areas where they identified uh, exactly what you're saying, and identified either need or want, or the kind of things that might that, that, that might develop. They've now turbocharged that, and from 176 million over six years, they are spending 100 million a year. But the trouble is that it hasn't really worked. So they got Sir Robert Choate, former head of the Office of Budget Responsibility, to do uh, a study into it. And these new worshipping communities were supposed to bring in, they, they had to put an estimate as to how many they thought they credibly could bring in with the money that they're being given. And someone gave astronomical sums of money, millions and millions and millions. And they were expected to bring in about 89,000 Christians. They ended up in the report with about 12,500. And they had to change the definition to new witnessed disciples in order to include people who turned up to a cafe but had not actually attended divine worship. I don't, you know, now I've criticised this quite hard, partially because this has actually come out of funding parochial ministry, and the consequence of that has been a death spiral in certain parts of the country in parochial ministry. But actually the concept isn't per se bad. The trouble was that it focused almost exclusively on one style of worship, which might work in nice middle-class areas of London, but turned out not to work so well in other parts of the country. And it might work if it actually reinforced that which was already there and revitalised ministries that were there and loved and actually worked from, you know, worked from the group that you have and worked outwards, you know, almost as you were suggesting, Dan. But it didn't do that. It kind of force planted new communities in and then found found all over the place. They just haven't taken root.
1: Um, Marcus, on the subject of playing to strengths, uh, I wonder if I could ask you about Justin Welby's comments about the decline of faith in the country uh in which he said that it's not all bad referring to the decline he says i rejoice in less of a bossy attitude and the church stepping back from telling everyone what to do uh do, do you see that as someone who's playing to the church's church's strengths or is he as dan suggested in his piece suffering a, a fatal loss of confidence
0: it's funny i can see what he means and i can see that you know who he's talking to him, and, and that's There's so much of a conversation within the Church of England, particularly. There's a certain beating up of ourselves about the times when we were perhaps a lot more chauvinist and a lot more willing to throw ourselves about the place, particularly with regard to other Christians. The trouble is what you can't help hearing in that is a disinterest in whether people find God, know Christ, go to heaven. You've got, you know, all of those basic questions that actually, he, he almost certainly doesn't mean this. And he as a person who has a deep concern for people coming to God. But the trouble is that when we're a little bit too concerned about beating ourselves up about our past, there is a danger that we're not that interested in the future and of the people who actually, we hope, will find God now and in the future, and obviously being Anglicans, we hope they find God and them through the Church of England, and everybody else hope they find God in their own way. I sort of, yeah. And of course, when you start sounding like you don't care about that,
1: people might take you at your word. Thank you, Dan and Marcus. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.